and uh, Merry Christmas. The other night after our candlelight service, my friend asked me, why were you so high running down the aisle waving the candle? Huh? So the backstory is, I was at the back with uh, Jenny and Karen, who started swaying to uh, Joy to the World. Then I think Sabrina or Yen Chun passed me a candle, so I joined in. Just then, Rachel came in and then said, we should be doing this at the front. So I said, okay, and I went. Halfway down the very long aisle, I started to regret my decision. <laughs> because dressed in white, somehow very big. Anyway, so, uh, but you got to finish what you started. So I hurried to the front and then I nudged all the lay readers, asked them to join me. Yeah. So I thought you should know that I was not drunk that night. Now that Christmas is here, what's next? Today is Boxing Day, coming Friday is New Year's Eve. After that, students go back to school, adults go back to work. We have to start clearing all the leftover turkeys and chocolates and cookies to make way for pineapple tarts and pakwa. <sighs> Maybe stock up on Gleviscon or something like that. And then we shall have Easter. Life after Christmas is a familiar drill. Ever imagined what life was like after the first Christmas day? Well, the wise men, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, left Bethlehem for their own country by another road. The shepherds also went home, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen in the manger. First-time parents, Joseph and Mary, began their no-day, no-night cycle of breastfeeding, diaper-changing, and putting baby Jesus to bed. Moses and Sandra will know this very well. Congratulations. Life after the first Christmas Day was a bit anticlimax. And nothing happens for the next 30 years until Jesus is all grown up and begins his ministry in Galilee. The speech in our gospel reading takes place on a significant day in his earthly career. This is the day when Jesus reorganizes the household of God by calling the 12 apostles, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. These 12 apostles of the New Testament church officially replaced the 12 tribes of the Old Testament Israel. If the church was born on the day of Pentecost, the calling of the 12 would be the day that the church was conceived. On this day, the household of God is given a new purpose. Whereas the 12 tribes were called to hear and obey the law, the 12 apostles were instructed to go and proclaim the gospel. Jesus commands them, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sorry. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Indeed, Jesus was sent by the Father to reveal the mystery of the kingdom which has been kept secret since the beginning of the world. And now Jesus sends the apostles to reveal the same. If all of us here confess to belong to the household of God, to be part of the New Testament apostolic church, then we must carry on this mission that we receive from Christ through the apostles. We must reveal to the world the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In more concrete and familiar terms, our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us. 
For this reason, may I suggest to you that life after Christmas is not just going back to the daily routine. Life after Christmas is about proclaiming the kingdom of Christ. And as, and as we shall see, it is a dangerous but powerful life. As the year draws to a close, I have a short three-point sermon based on our gospel reading, and the message is this. Proclaim the kingdom of Christ till the end of your lives. In the introduction, I talked about Jesus calling the twelve and sending them out. Our gospel reading picks up at a point when Jesus is giving the apostles a mental preparation on what they will face in the future. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep is a metaphor for the people of God, which we should know very well at Church of the Good Shepherd. The flock is called to be pure and harmless like doves. They are to be the moral opposites of wolves who are evil and vicious. Wolves may refer to the direct enemies of the gospel, but the term can also refer to sinful human beings in general since we're all by nature hostile to God. Jesus says here that he is deliberately sending his sheep to the wolves. This metaphorical statement underscores the danger, even the risk of dying when disciples proclaim the kingdom. However, the good news of the kingdom is so important, so valuable, so life-saving, that it's worth the risk and sacrifice. Therefore, even though Jesus loves his sheep, he must still send them out to the wolves in order that more wolves may be turned into sheep. Certainly, it is bizarre that Jesus came to save our lives only to send us out into danger. However, any suspicion of foul play vanishes once we realize that Jesus himself came to live so that he may die for you and I. And this scheme of salvation, losing lives to save lives, will make perfect sense when we comprehend the significance of the kingdom of God. And the significance of the kingdom is this. There is life after death. Human life does not end when the physical body dies. There is a resurrection of all humankind, some into eternal life, the rest into eternal punishment. This hope of eternity, for better or for worse, is what we proclaim. Everlasting life in God's kingdom is worth dying for. Since the salvation of Jesus Christ is not an earthly salvation, we gladly offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord, knowing that he will resurrect us into paradise. But before we get to the point of martyrdom, perhaps we should ask ourselves, how have we been proclaiming the kingdom of God? You know, I've always been proud of our English congregation because the majority of us are actively serving God and his church. There's an old statistic 20% of the congregation does 80% of the work. Very old statistic. But I believe that in COGS, I can toss a ball into the pews right now, and more than half the time, it will land on someone who is already serving. Okay, maybe today, not so much, because not so many people here, but yeah, still. However, our gospel reading challenges me to take a closer look at our manpower situation. 
How many of us are actually working on the mission given to the church? That is, how many of us are directly involved in sharing the gospel, reaching out to the unsaved, and evangelizing to the lost? How many are teaching the word, building up new believers, and bringing others to maturity in Christ? I ran a quick poll among the staff, and these are the ministries which we think are most directly involved in evangelism and discipleship. Don't know if you realize, but these are also the ministries which are sorely lacking in manpower for one reason or another. I may be wrong, but somehow our members don't feel good enough to disciple adults. But they also don't feel good enough to teach the children. It appears that our members don't really like to reach out to outsiders, but they also don't want to nurture insiders. Some of you don't read the Bible enough, so you, say, you tell me, and not confident to share the gospel. Others study a lot and probably buried by books. I may be wrong, you can correct me after this, but when I reflect upon your paradoxical behavior, perhaps we still have a long way to go in terms of building up mature Christians. Mature Christians who are confident and capable of teaching, discipling, and evangelizing. Mature Christians who will stir each other up to join these ministries. Before all the other ministries get upset and stone me, let me clarify that you are important too, okay? Don't quit. And yes, discipleship happens in every ministry. What I'm saying is, if Christ is waging war against the dominion of Satan, then too many of us are at the back end producing ammunition when what we really need in this parish are people on the front line firing the bullets. Here's the challenge for next year. In 2022, can more of us take on these frontline roles in discipleship and evangelism? If you are in a back-end role, have multiple back-end roles, or have always been in the back-end, can you reprioritize and take your turn on the front lines? If you have been on sabbatical, in retirement mode or grandparent mode, can you take on some back-end roles so that you can free up others to fight on the front lines? And if you're not confident to serve anywhere, will you commit yourself to more systematic training in the next year so that you can step up in 2023? Returning to our passage again, Due to the inherently deadly nature of their mission, Jesus instructs the apostles, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Like the doves, the apostles must be pure and harmless so as not to give anyone any reasons to find fault with them. I mean, if they're living in this day and age, they must wear their mask properly. Check in at the public places using safe entry, return their trays after eating at hawker centers and things like that. Like the serpents, they must be clever to avoid drawing unnecessary attention to themselves or get involved in unnecessary trouble which may jeopardize their mission and lives. 
but yet they must not be too timid. Otherwise, they'll be unduly restricted in their work and end up being ineffective messengers. A balance between courage and caution must be found in order to spread the good news effectively. Two years of uh, safe management guidelines can make Christians very timid, indeed, overly cautious. For example, when we called for help uh, with flyer distribution last month, you remember, some concerns were raised. Is it a good idea to go door-to-door during the pandemic? Will residents be upset with us since the government says we should limit social interaction? Let me ask you then, when you're walking on the streets, have you not seen hired hands distributing business flyers again? When you're out in the malls, did you not encounter salespeople pushing products already? Truly, the sons of this world are more shrewd for the sake of money than the sons of light are for the sake of God. If you didn't think that it was a good idea to knock on doors, then at least help to stick the flyer to the gate. Next year, when we ramp up our outreach, may we remember Jesus' instruction to be cautious, yes, but also to be cleverly courageous. Regardless of how careful the sheep are, Jesus says that they will be attacked by wolves. In verses 17 to 18, he says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flock you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Also in verse 21, Brother will deliver brother to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. The reality is, Jewish religious leaders Roman authorities and even the apostles' own flesh and blood will find fault with them only because they do not want to hear the gospel of Christ. Given the inevitable risk, sacrifice and persecution that are ahead, who wouldn't want to give up? Who wouldn't be tempted to abandon Jesus? Foreseeing such recurring temptations, Jesus encouraged the apostles saying in verse 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. To endure means to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition. The end may mean martyrdom, but it can also refer to natural death, the end of suffering, or the end of the world, whichever is sooner. The point is, there is an official end date to the mission and suffering. And those who remain faithful to the mission until it is over will see God's salvation and the dawn of eternity. Hence, Jesus calls his apostles to continue believing in him despite temptation and continue proclaiming the kingdom in spite of opposition. Our Old Testament reading from 2 Chronicles chapter 24 gives us examples of someone who has endured and someone who did not. Zechariah is our role model, while Joash is our warning. From the reading we know that Joash was led astray by the influential leaders of Judah after the death of his uncle Jehoiada. As a result, Joash and the people of Judah fell back into idolatry. 
Nevertheless, Zechariah remained faithful to God and proclaimed judgment against the people. The people refused to listen to him and incited Joash to stone him to death. Thus, Zechariah died. This is a tragic story in many ways. It is a family tragedy because Zechariah is Joash's cousin and the son of his aunt, as you can tell from this family tree. In fact, Zechariah and Joash would have been like brothers given that they grew up together and Joash had no surviving siblings. But Joash delivered his only brother to death. It is a moral tragedy because Joash did not remember the loyalty and kindness of his aunt and uncle. He did not remember that his aunt saved his life when his vicious grandmother was murdering his siblings. He did not remember that his uncle gave him back his life by restoring him to the crown. Instead of repaying them, he killed their son. And ultimately, it is a spiritual tragedy. After so many years under the godly shepherding of Jehoiada, Joash failed to mature into a good shepherd himself. Instead of becoming a good shepherd, instead of remaining a sheep, he was deceived by the wolves and turned into a wolf. It is instructive for us to learn the consequences of Joash's unfaithfulness. The chronicler records the tragic death of Joash as follows. At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered their hand into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So he died and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Notice that Joash suffered a series of fatal events before dying. It is the most tragic way to die, if you ask me. It was as if you avoid crashing into the car in front of you, only to be crushed by the truck behind you, and when you crawl out of your vehicle, a bus runs over your body. But judgments like this await those who do not endure. On the other hand, Zechariah, who remained steadfast to the Lord, was given a happy ending. At the end of our reading, we hear Zechariah committing his actions to the Lord, saying, May the Lord see and avenge. And God hear him and vindicated him in less than a year. To this day, Zechariah is remembered as God's holy martyr and shall be honoured also in the age to come. The story of Joash and Zechariah teaches us that remaining faithful to the Lord ultimately pays off, even though we may not see the benefits in this lifetime. Life after Christmas is about proclaiming the kingdom of Christ. It is a life which continues believing in Jesus Christ until the final Christmas, a life which continues proclaiming the kingdom with courage and caution, a life enduring in faith and good works until the very end.
Such a life is risky, demands sacrifice, invites persecution. Along the way, we may even begin to worry if our faith is well-placed, especially if the day comes when the law of the land says we are wrong, when other religions insist we are mistaken, and our family and friends say we have gone mad. Against the majority of the world, we may begin to wonder, can we be the only ones who believe in the right God? Against various forms of social pressure, we may begin to suspect, are we seriously doing the right thing? It is for this reason that Jesus tells us, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. In other words, do not worry, because the world is not questioning you. They are questioning the Son of God. Therefore, God the Holy Spirit will answer them himself. All we need to do when we are brought to witness is to open our mouths and be his voice. How shall we speak? Speak truthfully. What shall we say? Tell the truth. Do we know the truth? We do. Jesus is the truth from the Father, and the Holy Spirit will bring to our remembrance all that he has taught us. Therefore, stop making excuses. Go and proclaim the kingdom of Christ till the end of your lives. Amen. Church, shall we stand and declare our faith through the Apostle Creed? <laughs> 